Hi, this is John. And have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and they use the phrase, well, I just believe the Bible? Well, Justin and I are going to have a conversation about that phrase. And really what it's called is Biblicism, isolationism, where we take proof text and take them out of context to make our point. We're going to talk about how that leads to heresy and theological controversy throughout history. So we hope you enjoy this conversation. It's lively, a little bit more academic, but I promise you it's going to be helpful in helping you understand how to properly understand your Bible and love God's word. Stay tuned. If you'd like to help support Theocast, you can do that by leaving us a review on iTunes and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Plus, we have a Facebook group if you'd like to join the conversation there. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Theocast, encouraging weary pilgrims to rest in Christ. Conversations around clarifying the gospel and reclaiming the purpose of the kingdom from a reformed and pastoral perspective. Your hosts today are Justin Perdue, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina. And I am John Moffat, pastor of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee. And Justin is not in Asheville today, but he is in a beach house. (laughs) A condo. Uh, The condo, sorry. He's in the condo, getting some time away to rest and read. And I am definitely jealous, and I am looking forward to do the same very soon. So, But uh, before we get started, uh, go ahead. No, it's it's good to be with you, man. And this is the second year that I've done this. Our elders decided that it would be good for me to take a week, a year to go away and read and study and write. And so I'm thankful to be able to do it. It's a it's a full week. I work hard, but it's also a nice change of pace, and it allows me to dig into stuff that I would not have time for otherwise. So mm. last year, I, I wrote some things for, for GRN and a paper for our own church on baptism and, and read a lot about confessionalism through history. This year, I'm doing some small writing projects, but then I'm also doing a deep dive into confessional Baptist history, like practical ecclesiology of our forebears mm. from 300 years ago, like documents from the general assemblies back in the day in London, England, and all these kinds of things. And so thankful for this time, man. And I hope it's profitable for my church and for the Grace Reform Network and for various things that we got going on. Anyway. For sure. Yeah. And for those of you on YouTubes, you'll see that Justin is sporting a new sweatshirt. A hoodie, baby. It's comfortable. It's very comfortable. comfortable. Uh, If you didn't know this, we do have shirts. I've got one on says crush guys and calm down. We've got coffee mugs that say the same thing. We've got Theocast coffee mugs and hats and shirts. And I don't know if you like that kind of stuff Uh, every week, somebody's buying something. So it's, it's encouraging. You guys should start uh, putting it on social media, which, what are you wearing? So (laughs) I don't know. Is that weird? It might be weird. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) It's kind of like when people, I mean, well, no, it's not. I was going to say, it's kind of like when people Instagram their food, Uh, but Maybe it's different. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Anyways, let's get into the topic. Let's not waste any time because we don't have much time to waste. So, Justin, today is definitely a particular topic that both of us are Mm -hmm. affectionately passionate about. No, we are. We both have been influenced by the effects of this in our experience in ministry and Christianity. So, without further ado, my friend, let's get into it. And we've seen the fallout of it. Right? Yeah, I mean, historically and in our present moment, mm-hmm. you've seen the title of the episode. I just believe the Bible. Um, or you hear people say things similar to that where they'll, they'll say, you know, I just want to be a Bible person. Mm-hmm. I want to speak like the Bible speaks. Uh, I'm just saying what the Bible says. 
And these are pious sounding statements. They, they sound good to us. It's like, mm-hmm. well, who's going to object to that? I mean, That's right. of course, we're just going to go ahead and, and disarm this out of the gate. Uh, the two guys behind the microphone sitting here uh, talking with you. And we trust everybody that's tuning into a podcast like this. Um, our assumption is that we all want to be Bible people. We all want to be people of the word. We all want to speak as the Bible speaks. We all want to track with the word of God. We all want the Lord to write his word on our hearts. So that's our baseline assumption. Yeah, to interject, uh, we believe it's sufficient. We believe it's inherent. Amen. It's God-breathed. It can be trusted. Exactly. We all agree. All of that. We affirm all of the above. And so that's the, the starting place for this conversation. What we're really trying to get after today is this. Throughout history, God's people have dealt with the scriptures. Um, having said that God's people want to be people of the word, there are better and there are worse ways to go about handling the scriptures and interpreting and understanding them. Mm-hmm. So throughout history, there have been people who, with the best of intentions we trust, have gone to the scriptures and aimed to speak in a way the Bible speaks, talk like the Bible talks, believe the Bible, and have made grave and serious errors as a result of that. We see it in our own day where people are acting as though they're the first people to ever read the Bible. Like we're just going to go in here and we're going to read this and we're going to work to try to understand it and just look at the words on the page in order to do so. And what we're going to try to talk about today and in one sense contend for today is, hey, there's a better way to do this. The Christians through history have dealt with the scriptures. 2,000 years worth of time where the Spirit of God has been ministering in the church and people have wrestled with the Bible. We are not the first people to take the Bible seriously. We are not the first people to read it. And so we can look through the history of the church and gain a lot of valuable information in terms of how people have understood the text. There's something called the history of interpretation. There's something called the regula fide, the rule of faith. These things really matter. There are ecumenical ancient creeds of the church where people sought, dealing with the scriptures, sought to hammer out doctrine, really valuable stuff. And we are, ourselves and many who listen to the show, are parts of various confessional traditions where there are confessions of faith that have also been produced in order to deal with the text and say what the Bible teaches. And so there's a a better way to go about doing this, and we're going to talk about this today and try to expose some of the errors that result from something called biblicism. Mm -hmm. I'll just go ahead and define it. Yeah, give us a definition. For us right now. So biblicism is is this, this posture, this hermeneutical approach, a way to go about interpreting the scriptures where we go and we just We chapter and verse it. We're going to say what's on the page. And in one sense, whether we mean to or not, we are isolating those words. We are not taking those words into, in the context of the entire scripture. We are trying to divorce the Bible from theological frameworks. That's right. And just take it, you know, in a vacuum as it were, and understand it. Mm. And so this is problematic on a number of levels, you end up creating a lot of tension, a lot of mystery that isn't there. You end up with the best of intentions, pitting one text against another. And again, with the best of intentions, you can draw some really, really bad conclusions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these conclusions are really bumping up against what we would call Christian orthodoxy. And at best, they're misleading and confusing. Mm. So that was kind of a long, long, teeing it up for us today, but 
let's go, John. Yeah. And so I, I think just to yeah. hone in on biblicism, another way of saying biblicism would be, I love how you said isolation. It's isolationism. Yeah. Uh, an example of this would be, Justin, if you heard me say, you have no idea what the context is, but you're getting this text from someone that knows me and they say, Justin, I'm concerned. I heard John say this to his child. If you do not listen to me, you will die. Right. That sounds threatening. Like he's threatening his children with, with death. And your, your first question you would have to ask is where did he say that? And why did he say that? Mm -hmm. Well, you call me and you're like, Hey John, what's the deal? And I was like, yeah, my son was about to step out into the street. And I said, if he's going to do that, he's going to die. Exactly. And you're going, Oh, well, that's just a true statement. You actually have affection and concern for your son, and there's a context behind it. We do the same thing with Scripture. We just exactly. drop a verse. We're not thinking about the context. We're not thinking about the author. We're not thinking about the greater context, right. and we're like, this is what it says. Another way of saying this is literalism. Well, don't you want to take the Bible literal? Yes, as it was intended to be taken. Right. But what we do is instead of taking the author's intention, literally, we take the text words, literally, mm -hmm. and we isolate them, isolationism, we isolate them from the greater context. So we're going to give examples of this and how this has gone wrong throughout history. And just to to explain this to uh, the way that Justin has, we're not dealing with a culture who's died and a, and a whole entire language that's died. And you've got one expert who's, you know, the expert on this particular culture and this particular language and these people groups. Uh, that is not the case. Uh, mm -hmm. Christianity has not gone away. And we've okay. been happy. We have godly well-trained men and women who have been studying scripture for 2000 years that we can go back and look at the debates. This is why creeds and confessions exist because we have had debates on whether or not we've interpreted God's word rightly and using those debates for our advantage. So we're going to give some examples from the, from scripture, from history. And we've got a great one that we're even going yeah. to use where Jesus himself, several uh, from the mouth, of excuse, uh, accuses people of isolation and literalism in such a way where they completely missed the point. So right. Justin, that's my additive to it. We can go ahead and jump. Yeah. In. And not to bury the lead, in the interest of clarity, like public service announcement time, we are saying that everybody has a theological system. Everybody mm. has a theological framework. And we've done an episode on this in the past. The question is not, do you have one? The question is, is your is system, is your framework <laughs> any good? Because yeah. even to say, oh, I just believe the Bible or you know, no creed but Christ, no confession but the Bible in and of itself is a confession. It is a That's creed, right. right? And so- it's not actually a tenable position to say that I'm just a Bible person because everybody has a hermeneutic, a method of interpretation. Everybody's got a framework. And so what we want to do is have a good one. And our argumentation over the years has been that the scriptures actually present these things to us and give us right. these frameworks and give us these things, these tools that we can then go back to the text with and better understand it. So here we go. I mean, the um, safe way of saying this is we're trying to use the same examples and systems the New Testament writers are using. We're, that's exactly. our argument here exactly. is that sure. we aren't we aren't using systems that a man outside of Scripture has given us. No. We believe the system that we're using has been given to us by Scripture itself. Yep. So if, if the key has been handed to you in the text, you should use that key as, as uh, Chad Bird calls it, the Christ key. I think we yeah. should pay attention to how the New Testament authors interpret the Old Testament and use that as a method going forward. Uh, absolutely. I could talk about that for the next 30 minutes, but that's not pointedly the <laughs> emphasis mm -mm. of today's show. We're I going to we give could, you a practical application yeah, of that. I think today. we could start 
by highlighting how this has occurred in different ways through history, old, mm-hmm. like more ancient history, if we even want to use that language, on up through today. We could give a lot of examples here, but we're just going to give maybe two or three. That's right. So we'll, let's start with one that was a, a prominent heresy in the early church, mm-hmm. taught by a man named Arius. So Arius is reading the Bible. He's we're reading for, third, fourth century. Correct. Yeah. And he's he's reading the scriptures. He's piecing things together, right? Where he's reading in the New Testament, like First Corinthians and other places, where Jesus is referred to as wisdom from God or the wisdom of God. And then he's also reading texts like Proverbs eight, where the you know wisdom personified, uh, which we all would understand to be ab- about Christ, you know, mm-hmm. and, and those things. And so he's he's looking at the this stuff, and he's taking certain words, certain words on the page, and he concludes that there was a time when the sun came into existence. There, in other words, there was a time when the sun was not. That's right. And so he begins to, to teach that the sun, you know, and Jesus in his incarnate state is a created being, the first and greatest creation of God, albeit, but still a created being. Mm. So the deity of the sun and the deity of Jesus is called into question, obviously. And this had to be dealt with in the church in that day. And we see, I mean, we could talk about Athanasius, we could talk about other fathers, but there are also several creeds that were produced in this era of the history of the church. People right. will know that, you know, in, in 325, you have the Council of Nicaea. In 381, it, you actually, they met in Constantinople, but between from those two councils and the and the creeds produced by them, we have what we often refer to today as the Nicene Creed. Right. The one in 325 is most explicitly about the sun, but the one from 381, which is the one that we use in our church, you know, once a month, is more robustly Trinitarian. There were more material added on the Father and the Spirit, right, just, et cetera. Right. To add to that, because the Go Apostles' ahead. Creed, which is older. Correct. Circa uh, second century. Right. Yeah, rather and than fourth century. Be- Right, and so because there need because this debate arose, it's not the Apostles' Creed is not helpful, or we don't love right. it, but it's of not as it we it use that as well as in our church pungently uh, Trinitarian. So Athanasius had to step in and say, "All right, listen, Eris is using the Apostles' Creed and and subverting this very important nature." Because yeah, let me, let me do this, Justin. Go for it. John. Sometimes people just to add to what you're saying. Sometimes people are saying you guys are getting so nuanced. Yeah. You're splitting in your theology. You're, you it. You're missing the greater part, and if you under if you read the history of Arius, he, he was a Orthodox um, theologian. I mean, you read his other parts of his theology; they were sound. And so people would say, John, he's so sound in all these other areas. Why are you taking aim at him in this particular area? Well, Athanasius was saying because I have to take aim here. This isn't a debate over something that is not eternal. This is a debate over something that is eternal, and therefore it matters. Brother, anytime we're dealing with the person and the work of God the Son, the only mediator between God and man, there is no such thing as splitting hairs. That's I right. Mean, th- literally, heaven and hell hang in the balance when it comes to these things because he either is who he says he was or he's not. He right. either is God and man, truly both, the one mediator between us and the Lord, and he either then was able to accomplish atonement and satisfaction for sins and the fulfillment of the law and resurrection and all those things, or he wasn't. 
And so, yeah, this stuff is, is critical. So then, and then in addition, you have the, the, the council um, of Chalcedon. So you have the Chalcedonian definitions of Christology coming up even in the fifth century after this. So you see, I mean, there's a, a couple of centuries where the church is dealing with in the aftermath of Arius and this kind of teaching and the stuff that is, is being propagated around the church has to deal with it and they have to hammer this out. Doctrine of the Trinity is more, it's systematized. It's formulized in good ways so that we can now succinctly articulate it, teach it, hand it down. A definition of Christology, the person and work of Christ is also hammered out. It's articulated, it's systematized so that we can better learn it, teach it, pass it down. These things are valuable Mm -hmm. and these creeds have been affirmed by Orthodox Christians for centuries and centuries and centuries at this point, and we do ourselves a great disservice, and we put ourselves in great peril That's if we right. ignore these things. Mm-hmm. And so to act as though these saints were not dealing with the Scriptures, not trying to deal with the text in faithful ways, but also trying to take into account everything that the Bible taught about the Trinity or taught about the Father, Son, and the Spirit, taught about the Son, His person, and His work, is to misrepresent them. That's right. Because these people, I, I mean, John, they were trying to be Bible people too. Right? Yeah. Well, they would quote right. things like, well, it says here, he's the only begotten son, which means at one point he was not begotten. <laughs> you know, At one point he was not. And right. we have to look at that and say, all right, why did the author choose in that context, in that culture, within that language, why did he choose to right. use that? And, and is that like the Psalm best? Two, Today I have begotten you. Right. Is you that know? the best English translation? Because if you've ever spoken or learned languages, you do know that there is not always a clear one-to-one yeah, translation right. between one word of the X. And we would all love a, a literal translation of the New Testament or the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic into the New Te- into English, but you actually probably would have a hard time reading it. For so sure. there, we have to be careful in this. And so this is why when we interpret Scripture and we get to something like, wait a minute, um, this sounds anti-Trinitarian, only begotten. Mm-hmm. You should stop and step back and go, all right, why do I feel this way? Who else has thought through this? What, what do I not know that I need to know? Uh, I've never really met an evangelical who truly is an evangelical, right? They understand the gospel, who doesn't read scripture from a Trinitarian mindset. Like when you read Genesis 1, you're putting Trinitarian theology into the text, right? Because you understand that God is not just uh, one. He is three and one. It's three, right? But you don't learn that from Genesis, right? Well, you see it. I, I, yeah, I you agree can with see you. See it. I agree with you because you do have. You know, you have in the beginning God, and then we understand from other portions of Scripture. This is what we. Are, this is exactly what we're talking about from John one and other places. We understand that the agent of creation is actually the second person of the Trinity, the divine Word, the Son, and then you also have the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. In right. Genesis 1. And so, yeah, with a Trinitarian, a proper Trinitarian framework from all of Scripture, we can then read Genesis 1 and say, yeah, it's there. This is proving our point in one sense, right. that this kind of systematic theology that's done in creeds and done in confessions is actually really helpful for us to be faithful students of the Scriptures. That's right. So when you read things like Begotten, you have to ask yourself, Okay, is this a cultural issue? What's going on? Why is he using that language? 
uh, because it would seem one verse would counteract the rest of Scripture when Jesus talks about being eternal, eternal with the Father, one with the Father. One verse can't squash all other ones. We do this all the time. We do, It says it here. Yeah, but all these Mm -hmm. other passages say the opposite. So let's Mm -hmm. find a balance here to figure out, you know, what are we missing? Exactly. If you're new to Theocast, we have a free ebook available for you called Faith versus Faithfulness, a Primer on Rest. And if you've struggled with legalism, a lack of assurance, or simply want to know what it means to live by faith alone, we wrote this little book to provide a simple answer from a Reformed confessional perspective. You can get your free copy at theocast.org slash primer. If you read something that is causing you to draw a conclusion that is outside the bounds of historical orthodoxy, you need to pause. You need to ask yourself the question, like, maybe I'm wrong here. Mm-hmm. And also, I need to then think about this verse in its context, and it, you know, maybe the immediate context of the paragraph or the book that it's in, the testament that it's in, the era of redemptive history that it's in, and also in the context of the whole scripture, yeah. and come to a place where I can understand this verse in a way that does not contradict all of that. While we're here, let's just go ahead and talk about a, a contemporary example along these very same lines. There's been a lot of dust stuff on Christian Twitter. There's always dust ups on Christian Twitter. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> people are like, well, brother, I mean, which one? Um, you know, depending on the day or the week. But right. over the last, let's say, six months, there's been a lot of you know, metaphorical ink spilled, digital ink spilled on Twitter about the doctrine of the Trinity, in particular, how God the Son relates to God the Father. So there's a lot of talk about EFS, ESS, so eternal functional subordination or the eternal subordination of the Son. And these things are calling into question historical, creedal, like Nicene, Chalcedonian definitions of the Trinity and the person and work of God the Son. All, the reason that where this comes from, in part, and, and people that are articulating things about God the Son and how he relates to God the Father that are problematic comes from this biblicism perspective, this biblicistic, if I can even use that yeah. word, yeah, where we're isolating verses and we're just trying to say what the Bible says. We're just trying to speak like the Bible does. Hey, I just want to believe the Bible. Guys will go to the Olivet Discourse where Jesus will say that no one knows the day or the hour of his return, the Father only knows. And now the way that we understand that, John, without going off into the weeds and getting mired in the minutia here, is that that is a reference to Jesus in his humanity saying this. It is not that God the Son, who is fully God, equal with the Father, doesn't know Hmm. the plan. It's that Jesus in his humanity, because he is truly human, And he has, in one sense, limited himself, emptied himself, to use the language of Philippians 2, and has become truly human in order to represent humans. He is saying nobody knows. Only the Father knows. And we could go into that maybe at at some other time if we needed to. But what guys are saying these days is, well, I mean, it says only the Father knows. We just want to be Bible people. And so there is this eternal functional subordination, this eternal subordination of the Son where there is this way that the son has always related to the father, and then this has all kinds of ramifications for how you know, authority and hierarchical structures work for us and how women are su- to submit to men and all these kinds of things. Yeah. And we're just like, hey, guys, let's, let's pump the brakes for a minute because the things that you're saying about God the son seem to contradict Nicaea and seem to contradict Chalcedon and also seem to contradict a boatload 
of other verses, other passages in the scripture about yeah. the divinity and the deity of God, the son being equal with the father. And so maybe you need to, to pause and ask yourself, is my interpretation of one verse in the all that discourse contradicting all of this other stuff, this avalanche of testimony that exists out there? And our answer to that is, yeah, I, we think yeah. it does. Right. Well, and there's at times there can be kickback against creeds and confessions saying, well, those are just man-made documents. To which I would agree, sure. they they actually are man-made documents, uh, but there's a reason why they exist, and there's a reason why the church has affirmed them for so many years because of them. They are biblical. They're a biblical defense against heresy. Yep. So sometimes people are like, "Yeah, I understand what that says, but it, it it's wrong." And I go, "Well, you should be really cautious sometimes about calling something the church has affirmed." for hundreds of years, almost 2,000 years, and saying it's wrong. Um, Not to say that we can't do that. There's a lot of things in church history that we call are wrong, uh, that that some Christians have affirmed. But I I, I do find it, it it is interesting in that how there's an aversion at times to history. And, you know, it does feel like there's arrogance and there's pride. Listen, I know we take a lot of shots. I know we take a lot of shots at John MacArthur. So I'm going to take a shot and then and give a compliment at the same time. Amen. So John uh, is not confessional. He's not creedal. And so in his early years, he was preaching through uh, the gospels. And in doing so, he ended up denying the eternal relationship of the father to the son. And so he he basically denied the eternal sonship of Christ. And so I'll, I'll link the article here. Um, and in the article, it basically asks the question, is it true that John MacArthur has reversed his position on the eternal sonship of Christ? And the answer to that is yes. And then they provide a statement of why and what happened. But it's a great example of a guy, and I'm I'm super thankful that John put a public statement out there. It's Amen. all there for the read. But it's a great example of what can happen when you isolate yep. yourself in a particular text, and you're not allowing the greater context. And I would just say, allowing history, mm-hmm. other people who've wrestled with the text to help inform you, so you don't fall into the same uh, the same heretical issues. Yeah. Uh, if John would have held that position and continued to hold to it, it mm-hmm. it becomes a that's an issue, right? Yeah, that's so a heterodox they, position. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, thank God credit, he recanted and, and yeah, yeah and publicly Absolutely. said that. And amen. Praise the you Lord. Know, Justin, some other issues that um, I don't think are heterodoxy, uh, they can be if you take them to the logical conclusion. But, logical, uh, yeah. right. But people will do this with things like Calvinism and, mm-hmm. and specifically whom to whom Christ died for. Sure. Uh, so we will say, well, is it limited or is it unlimited? And they'll use particular passages out of context and say, well, see here, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And we, we it says literally says those words. So John, you guys are not taking the text literally. You're taking your system and you're imposing it on the text. Mm-hmm. And I hear that argumentation saying, okay, I am, I am taking what all of scripture says and allowing it mm-hmm. to inform what I see in this particular text. Mm-hmm. And if, um, and then people will say, well, you're allowing, you're allowing logic and theological systems to be what causes you to come to these conclusions. Same thing with like John three sixteen. It says for whosoever, right. Believes that means that you're imposing Calvinism. Mm-hmm. You're imposing this in, on, onto the text. And so these are great examples for yeah. those of you that may not be in the Trinitarian debate, but some of you who are listening probably sure. are in the reformed Calvinistic debate as an example this is where biblicism and isolationism is an example, or I would say proof texting, where sure. we're just going to pull one phrase from one verse and say, see, 
Jesus didn't die for just a select group of people. He died for all. That That's a great example of how dangerous biblicism can be because sure. you are ignoring the entirety of everything that Scripture has said for one verse. In my mind, immediately goes to John 6, 37. I mean, it doesn't serve our purposes but so well right now, but I just want to say it. Yeah. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So there you have right. this. Jesus in one sentence is effectively summing up a lot of that. That yeah. You know, there are certain people that the Father has given to him, and whoever comes, he'll never yeah. cast them out. When I anyway, lay my life down for my sheep. No, amen. I mean, there's there's a lot there. That's a good example, though, the, yeah. of how we tend to isolate certain verses and build a theology outward from one verse, when in mm-hmm. reality what we need to do is work from the whole, what's main and plain in the whole, to help us understand individual verses. Many people have said this through history. I say it a lot. I, I have, in listening to some Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons, I, I heard him speak this way, so I often will reference Lloyd-Jones when I say this. If we do not understand the whole, we will do terrible things with the parts. Amen. That's the way we need to work. Not We don't need to invert that relationship and work from the small and the, and the more obscure outward. We work from the whole to the individual parts, Amen. and that helps us be better better interpreters of scripture. So let's talk about Jesus for a minute. All right. (laughs) That'd be nice. Uh, No, absolutely. So just to give an example from the scriptures, uh, we're going to look at a couple of different passages and and quote some stuff for you here from the mouth of Christ himself to demonstrate that there is a way to go to the scriptures and, and look at them and study them and be doing it all wrong. Mm. And even Jesus said this. So it's not enough to simply just be a Bible person. It's like the question is, are you rightly understanding those scriptures? Mm -hmm. So John chapter 5, famous words. We quote them often. It's one of the most important verses or one of the most important passages for our hermeneutic, John. Um, Can we just say Jesus was the first to call out biblicism? Can we just go ahead and say that? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I mean, I think there were probably, I mean, John the Baptist maybe too, but I mean, I agree with you. I agree with yeah. you. For, for the purposes of our, of our episode today, yes, Jesus, the first to call out biblicism. So John chapter 5, many will know it, verse 39, verse 46 are the two that we're going to cite. We'll probably also jump over to verses in Luke 24. Mm-hmm. So Jesus says to an audience of, of people who were students of the scriptures, studied the law for, I mean, it basically gave their lives to this uh, and were trusted to interpret it rightly. He says to them, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you find eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Then in verse 46, again, John 5, he says, if you believed Moses, again, who wrote the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. So what's he calling out there? He's calling out a way of studying the scriptures that is of no value. He, and he is saying there is a way, a particular way that you need to study and understand the scriptures. And here he's talking about the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And in a pointed way, he talks about the book of Moses in verse 46. He says, you need to understand these things, these documents, these books, these scriptures as a testimony about me. That's right. And it's only in me that you're going to find eternal life. And this has always been the plan. So right. he is saying, you, you don't just, you're not just a Bible person. You're not just going to say what the Bible says. There's a way you should understand it. 
Right. And that's not new information. It's not nope. like, oh, mic drop. Oh, this is so new. No one's ever heard this before. It's supposed to be about Jesus. It's a rebuke. Exactly. He actually tells the leaders of Israel, you should have known this. Exactly. You should have seen this. Yeah. And I'm rebuking you for not seeing it. Right. Yeah. So it's not that all of a sudden Jesus introduces a new hermeneutic. He's like, it's always been this way. Exactly. It's, right. And if you understand and you listen to like the writers of David and David's words, you can hear that David actually understands these words. He's looking for mm-hmm. the sun. And yes, there's metaphor and there's poetry yeah. and you can see a lot of uh, symmetry and typology, but you understand that the New Testament writers start going back. I mean, James does this a lot too. They go back and say, see, it said it here. Mm-hmm. Here's the fulfillment. Here's exactly. the example of it, right? Uh, Jesus does this, even using the illustration of Moses raising the serpent up yes. in the wilderness. John that 3, they looked 14, at the, 15. Right. Yeah. So uh, it's it's helpful to understand that there is a way that we are told to read Scripture, mm-hmm. and thankfully— we are not left alone that the writers of the new Testament help us make sense of the old. And once we do that, we then flow through the whole Bible with that, with that hermeneutic, with that system that's given to us from Christ. Oh, Christ becomes the point. So when we start in Genesis, we understand from John, he's the creator, right? He then becomes not only the creator, but he becomes the substitute and he becomes the king. He's the promised redeemer and all those things. Right. You start seeing he plays all of these roles from creator, redeemer, priest, king, prophet, and you just realize the whole thing is a flow from him. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and says, you didn't get it. You missed it. No, 100%. I remember preaching through Genesis. It was striking to me how people from the very beginning were looking for that promised redeemer. They were looking for the seed of the woman who would be their deliverer. That's clear. And then, yeah, I, I just this past Sunday preached the first message in a series in Romans and, and dealt with the Old Testament because of what Paul says there about the gospel you know, of God that had been revealed through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who descended from David according to the flesh. It's like, yeah, it's all there, man. And mm. you know, to your point, also to pick up on something you said that I think is a very good observation, Jesus is rebuking his audience. It's not that he's saying anything new. He's saying, you should have known this. Luke 24 bears that out as well. People know that account, the Emmaus Road. Jesus is walking with a couple of disciples. They don't know who he is. And he says to them, after they relay to him everything that's happened and all that stuff about the death of of him, his own death and, (laughs) and all that stuff, he says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So he's saying, you should have known this from the prophets. That's right. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The prophets talked about it. You should know this. And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again, there's a way in which we read the scriptures. Verse One other the, example. Another verse from there. Peter's, I'll just work quick. Peter's sermon in Acts is a great example of this as well. He rebukes yes. them. Yes. So they should have seen this and yes. they didn't. Acts 13, Paul, mm-hmm. same deal. So, Going on, people know verses 25 to 27 of Luke 24 pretty well, Mm -hmm. but there's another verse, verse 32, that's remarkable. When after, you know, in the breaking of the bread, they knew Jesus. That's huge, Lord's Mm -hmm. Supper. Um, But then verse 32, the disciples, once they know who he is, the people that have been walking with him on the road, they say this, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road 
while he opened to us the scriptures. Mm. So again, there is a way in which we read the scriptures in which they are opened up to us. And in particular here, it's a Christ-centered hermeneutic. It's a Christological hermeneutic. These are a testimony about Jesus. Mm. And he does the same thing, John, in the Sermon on the Mount when he preaches the law. Because he says that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets came to fulfill it, all that. There's nothing in the law that's going to pass away. And then he says that you need to have a righteousness that's greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he goes on to preach the law. He grabs a couple of the commandments from the Decalogue. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I'm telling you that if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you are liable to the fires of hell. Mm. Does the same thing. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. I'm telling you that if you lust after someone, you know, you, you've broken the law and you stand liable to, in the judgment. What's he doing? Is he saying something new? No. No. He is preaching the law to the hearts of men the way that it should have always been understood. That's it right. should have never been understood as some mere external conformity. It should have always been understood that this law actually crushes you in your sin and drives you to the only one who could fulfill it. And and so he's just rightly interpreting the law. Here's a great example of this. The rich young ruler walks up to him and says, Perfect. what must I do to inherit the kingdom? Perfect. He was misinterpreting scripture. Because this is why he says, in them you think you have eternal life. Yes. The greatest example of this is the rich young ruler. Yes. And so Jesus uses the law to crush that. The, the, yep. the, the, the original intentions, the first use of the law, which is to crush yep. him, right? Yep. So anyways, well, there's much more we need to say, will say, and continue to say. Uh, but this is, a, um, I, you know, unabashedly, Justin and I are trying to help you uh, see and argue for a proper hermeneutic. Yep. And our argument would be that we think Scripture teaches a redemptive historic understanding of Scripture, that all of Scripture is about Christ redeeming for us the kingdom that was lost, right? He created Eden. He created this beautiful relationship between the king and its subjects, and it got destroyed. And so what does Jesus promise? I have come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, the restoration. What does Paul say? We are ambassadors. Be reconciled to God, right? Mm-hmm. So the whole story is about God reconciling people to himself to restore the kingdom that has been lost. And so this is why our tagline is to clarify the gospel and to reclaim the purpose of the kingdom. And we think the clearest hermeneutic of that is a redemptive historical understanding of scripture, mm-hmm. also known as covenant theology. Well, in the notes, we'll put our link to multiple, multiple uh, resources that we have to covenant theology. We encourage you to um, go look at those. Justin, any final thoughts before we run over to a different podcast? No, I think this is a, I, well, that was no. And then I say, <laughs> uh, so yes, I do have a thought or two just to put a bow on this conversation. We all want to be people of the word mm. and we all want to be faithful students of the word. We want to handle it rightly. We want to interpret it correctly. And we will not do ourselves or anyone that we know a service if we act as though we're the first people to read the scriptures and we ignore creeds and confessions that have been produced through history that have stood Mm -hmm. the test of time. And so don't wig out. We're not, we are sola scriptura guys. The scripture, (laughs) the scripture alone, you know, is our final and ultimate authority. And there are a number of helpful resources over a couple of thousand years subservient to the scriptures that help us understand it. Don't be allergic to the talk of system. Don't be allergic to the talk of frameworks because the scripture itself presents these things. So take a breath, study the scriptures, study church history. All of this will be of great profit to you. Mm. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. If you take away anything from today, 
The entirety of the scripture is a testimony about Christ, his person, his work, what he would come to do to reconcile us to God and give us life eternal. Hmm. Amen to that. Well, for those of you listening, we do have other resources available for you. We have a podcast called Everyday Grace, where you can listen five days a week to sermon clips about the gospel from Justin and I and podcast clips from us and our host and our guest. Uh, you can go to our website to learn about that. We have an entire YouTube channel just dedicated to that. So if you want to share that to friends and family, it's a great way to introduce them to resting in Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. We'd encourage you to do so. Justin and I do a second podcast every week. We love this podcast. It's called Simple Reformanda, which means always reforming, where we take the truths of what we talked about today and we help you to apply them in your home, in your life, and also in your church. And so this second podcast called Simple Reformanda is available to our supporters. We have a membership that allows you to help support Theocast and what we're doing. And you can go to theocast.org to learn more about it. It's called Semper Reformanda. We also have an app and that is growing. That community is exploding. We have lots of new people in there and I and Justin are doing our best to get in there and answer questions and engage, but um, it, it's great. It's a but, very but safe place. But you guys place. are, you're answering each other's questions and interacting That's in right. ways that are encouraging to me. I jump on there and I look at stuff. It I'm is. Like, this is really good. Yeah. It is. It's a safe place. Uh, Facebook tends to get a little lively. We do have a Facebook group. It can get a little hot and heated in there. Just because it's SR, broader. Yeah. It's right. SR is very, it's a very safe community. We're, we're really thankful for that. Um, we're seeing more and more churches in, get involved with us, uh, more church planting get involved. Uh, man, well, I guess we'll just throw all the announcements in there. But continue to pray for J- Justin and I. We're working on Grace Reform Network, which is a church planting network slash ne- uh, church network. And we have a, a lot of exciting uh, new uh, news coming for that. We have a lot of people joining that. If you're interested in it, you're a Reformed Baptist and you're interested in that, we uh, please come and check us out, graceformnetwork.org. All right, we're done. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. And Lord willing, we'll see you in glory. But if not, we'll have another episode for you, uh, if it's God's will, on the airwaves. We'll see you soon.